0: Well, I said this uh, evening we would review what it means to contend for the faith, and I have to admit this morning I was really just not up to the task of, of preaching on the church of Paragamum and, and part of that's personal. One of my personal convictions lately, just in, in my walk with God, is, has been that I have a tendency to be ready to fight. I grew up fighting and sometimes it's hard to take somebody out of that attitude, and there's a story in the Southern Baptist Convention in the 70s whenever they were going through what's referred to as the conservative resurgence. There was a man, part of of what he did, and the strategy behind Adrian Rogers was a part of it, and W.A. Criswell in Dallas, and several prominent men that we look up to today were a part of the conservative resurgence, and One of the men who I actually had the privilege of knowing, or at least speaking to, he went to the different various Southern Baptist seminaries and brought about kind of that conservative change and making sure that liberal theologians weren't teaching things that were contradictory to the Baptist faith and message. And you know, you could just tell years he had spent, I mean, decades really, 70s, 80s. It wasn't really until the 90s that people started saying the conservative resurgence won and the convention, and if you want some commentary on that, that might be losing now, but well, you got that for free, there's no extra charge for that, that was extra. But this guy was really on the top in terms of respect and renown and everything else. And He just didn't know how to stop fighting. After it was all said and done, after liberal theology was set aside, He ended up getting fired from one of the Southern Baptist seminaries because he just didn't know how to stop fighting. And in a very different way, I think I share that. I have a tendency to want to protect doctrine so much that sometimes I really miss the spirit of the gospel that tells us to address things with gentleness and patience and to seek mercy and all of these various different elements and so turning this morning to the church in Paragamum, I was almost like wait a second God why would you bring me here you know I wasn't ignorant whenever we began the study of the things that were coming up but as I was studying throughout the week I was really frustrated I was like okay God you are softening my heart towards this you are you're making me more gentle I'm trying to be more like you And now you're giving me more reasons to brawl over doctrine. I don't need any more reasons. It was a personal struggle. But I'm reminded of the necessity of it. And this is something that I think is difficult for people to grasp. And it's a simple question. Is there anything that's worth fighting for? Can we define those things that are worth fighting for? Yeah, I try to think very evangelically. You know, I try to think, how would I appeal to someone who is totally lost? or If I was going to Tanzania or Uganda, how does the gospel <coughs> message need to be framed in a way that it would be understandable in their heart language? I think about missionaries and the difficulties that they face as they minister to people all over the world. Can I ask you guys a question? What do you think the most difficult mission field in the world is? Home? Like your wife? No. (laughs) Yeah, family, that's our first mission field. That's definitely a principle Jesus taught, our family is our first mission field. The United States, Deanne said, might be the the most difficult. So that might be, you know, our neighbors around us. You See a lot of people nodding their head as though they agree. Why? Why is that more difficult than, say, India, where people are practicing what is very occultish, very pagan? Because we've been so blessed and have so many other things to do. We've been blessed, and so you're, you're saying. Are you, you're talking about affluence because as a nation, we have a lot of affluence, and so we have a lot of things to distract us. My thought process is if I mess up in India, I can come home. I don't have to see those people all the time if I make them mad or if I say something wrong or don't live up to that expectation, but I have to see my neighbor every day. Okay. For fear of losing our reputation among the people we live with. Yeah. And yeah, no one wants to hear a prophet in their hometown. Okay. Anyone else? My thought process is different. I haven't heard my thought process yet. That doesn't mean anyone's wrong. But could I offer you that potentially the reason why America is the most difficult mission field is because we're already a Christian nation, right? It's this issue of nominal Christianity. What does it mean to be a nominal Christian? Very rarely have I ever come across one of my neighbors or anyone that said, oh, well, I'm actually a Zaoist. I don't believe what you believe. Certainly that's the case. Recently, actually it was Miss Carolyn's neighborhood, whenever we were having prayer meetings, I met a Zaoist. And um, so that was different. But most of the time I meet people and they say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And so the next question, well, where do you go to church? I don't. haven't in a long time. It seems like nominal Christianity is actually the hardest mission field to begin reaching people because people don't even realize that they're lost and you can't even convince them that they're lost. How many times we live in Catholic country or just outside the maybe Catholic country borders, you know, Subiaco, very odd and strange part of the state in, in terms of when we talk about where we are in Arkansas, but when we go past Russellville towards Paris and those different areas it's very evidently Catholic country. We talk to people, yeah i 'm Catholic can't convince these people that they need Jesus. Well, what then would, should be our strategy? What then should be our approach if I was Uh, ministering to predominantly Mormons, I think I would focus on the sufficiency of the gospel and the sufficiency of the word, and I would probably talk about the deity of Christ as my main points of emphasis. If I was ministering to to someone who, you know, these very different perspectives, I, I would probably try to focus on important key doctrines. What should be our focus in the heart of nominal Christianity? I think the greatest defense against a nominal Christianity is simply a dynamic faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to read the entire book of Jude as we consider what it means to contend for the faith. The Bible says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. For they walk in a way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And... All "...of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, "In the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions." Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now obviously we're not going to exegete all of the book of Jude. But there are some things that I want to look at that are important whenever we talk about what does it mean to contend for our faith. The first part, we'll just look quickly at Jude's introduction, which I've identified as verses 1 through 3. Jude identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Notice the first thing that we should have in our hearts and in our attitudes when it comes to contending for the faith, especially in light of false prophets, is an attitude of humility. Jude says that he is a servant of Jesus Christ and he's in no way exercising or exerting authority, but he's okay to say that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. He says that he's a a brother of James and he reminds me of Andrew in the Gospels who's constantly referred to as a brother of somebody else, always playing second fiddle. Now, in actual fact, if Jude was the brother of James, the one who wrote the book of James, that would mean that Jude is also the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Don't you think that would be a more appropriate introduction for an apostolic letter? Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ? But we see his humility. It comes out as he introduces himself the first words, a servant. Literally a slave of Jesus Christ. To those who are called I mean, look at the book of Jude, and the bulk of it delineates not only what false teachers look like, but it also itemizes what judgments await them. And that can be something kind of scary for us to look at as we read about God's wrath, His deliverance, the things that He's going to bring upon false teachers. And I, I do believe that there is a special judgment for those that hold positions of authority, especially within the church, and abuse it. It's something to fear. But he writes to those who are called. Those judgments, then, why are they there? Why does the bulk of this book tell us what false teachers look like and why they should be avoided? It's simply that. It's a warning. Jude is confident that those that are receiving this letter are called. They're called. They're called by God. Beloved in God, Father, and Jesus Christ. Not only that, but they're sanctified. They're set apart. They're made holy for God. And then Jude says... I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I share Jude's sentiment. I was very eager to talk about how wonderful life in Christ is. How peaceful it is, how blissful it is. But then Jude says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's true that there's peace with God. It's true that there's peace and, and, and security and even tranquility whenever we're able to worship God. But Jude says it's necessary to write appealing that you contend for the faith. There are things worth fighting for and there are things that you need to keep watch over. This is a letter to a first century audience, and, but I think it's also a letter to the church throughout all ages. It's a timeless letter. He begins to give us a warning. Now, Because I don't have time to cover this entire book the the way that I would like to, but I also trust that you are able to read this book for your own and to pull the different various elements out and even to study it and to even exegete the passages that I will have to run over. For the sake of time, we can simply divide verse 4 all the way to verse 19 into two different sections. First, how do we identify false teachers? And second, what is the judgment that awaits them? I've made a list of 17 of those distinctive elements that identify false teachers. They're ungodly, they're carnal, they are their own Lord. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They speak evil of godly men. They reject that which confuses them. They do not reason. They're selfish. They cannot deliver on what they promise. Their opinions drift. They're always complaining. They want to impress people in order to put them under subjugation. They want to be liked so that they themselves can be elevated. They are divisive. They are sensual. They do not have the Spirit of God. For the sake of understanding, we can group these into three categories. That's the way my brain works. Are you guys tracking with me so far? If we look at this entire chapter, this whole book, 17 distinctives that identify what false teachers look like, we can categorize these into three areas. First, that they reject the truth. False teachers simply reject the truth. This begins in verse 4 whenever Jude says that they are ungodly. God is the source of truth. He's a source of all truth. Those who are ungodly do not have truth that is outside of them. Rather, they respond to the truth that is in them. They use language like, well, God led me in this direction to justify things that are ungodly. Well, it might be truth that the Spirit of God leads each individual and gives us the burdens and desires of our heart. That is only true and can be tested by the fact that it does not contradict Scripture. Anyone that tells you that God has led them in a particular direction and it contradicts Scripture, they're full of baloney. God does not change. He is not man that He should change. Second, they reject that which confuses them. This is in verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. This is what scares me the most when I look at the church today. And I don't think it's an issue of compromise as, I, as much as I think it's an issue of complacency, but I might be wrong and we'll just let the Bible speak for itself and you can decide what the Spirit of God is saying. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They're faced with something that doesn't make sense to them and they, therefore it must be stupid. Has anyone ever done that before? Doesn't make sense to me, must be stupid. two things that I would point out. God says that if we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It is possible to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are the people of God while we walk in darkness. And the fruit of our own lives proves that we are lying and do not have fellowship with God. Considering the issue of being led astray and being confused, First Thessalonians Paul writes, "...with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false." Consider the reality and the heartbreak of sin is not just that, that sin causes us to do what is wrong from a moral perspective, but that it actually blinds us from what is true. Therefore, if you have a false teacher, and they're in front of us, and, they're, they're, and their false teacher is speaking to us, the reason they don't understand some things, it could just be immaturity, but it's also very possible that God has given them over to the desires of their hearts. Paul uses that language in Romans chapter 1. has given them over to the desires of their heart that they would be deluded into accepting what is false. They do not reason. Uh, This is something that is, is missing in the church today. The ability to reason over Scripture. In Acts chapter 16, we find the example of the Bereans. I think I might be misquoting that. It's in the book of Acts. But we find the examples of the Bereans. Men who, when they woke up in the morning, went to the synagogue so that they could open up the scrolls and they could contend with one another over the meaning of Scripture. Today we've become so haphazard that we just accept things as truth without actually contending with one another. We don't have discussions. And and even trying to have a discussion prompts um, accusations of discourse. You expect the church to grow when we can't reason from Scripture what it is actually saying or how it applies to our life? It's no wonder we have immature baby Christians. They don't know how to reason. So too is the mark of a false teacher, someone that refuses to reason, someone that doesn't explain why they believe what they believe, and someone that cannot handle any opinions that are different than theirs. Scriptures tell us to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Someone that cannot obey this command is more than likely a false prophet. They cannot deliver. What do I mean by that? If you look in verse 12, Jude uses this this imagery, and this imagery imagery is used by Peter, but to say that they are clouds without water. They are fruitless trees in late autumn. They're twice dead and they're uprooted. What's the problem with a well that has no water inside of it? It's useless. problem with a teacher that does not teach? A waste of everybody's time. What is the problem with a cloud that doesn't bring forth water? Put yourself in the mind of the first century where agriculture would have been a bigger deal than it is today. It's just a really big disappointment. They cannot deliver on what they offer. Namely, because they're trying to offer something that the Bible has never promised. Their opinions change. The problem when you have truth that is inside of you rather than truth that is outside of you, like a revealed religion, like true Christianity, is now your opinion is subject to whatever the the popular opinion is. So our opinions change. This doesn't mean that Changing position makes you a false prophet. If you change position and it's based on reason, if you change position and it's based on godliness and truth, that's a very good thing that you've changed position. Some might even call that repentance. Brother Wade and uh, my, my pastor at Temple, he, he always told me you know, he was a Calvinist before he went to seminary, and then he got to seminary and he had to repent of his Calvinism. Some people would say amen to that. It's okay for our opinions to change, but whenever they are so fleeting because they're ungrounded and they're guided by the opinions of man and by the heart, that person is a false prophet. That is a person rejecting truth altogether. Scriptures warn us not to be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. And Finally, The way that they reject truth is that they do not have the Spirit of truth inside of them. The reason Christians are able to rest securely on truth, we see this in verse 19, is because the Spirit is inside of us, guiding us into all truth. I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times over again. You cannot read the Bible by yourself. You need the Spirit of God revealing that truth to you. Second category, false prophets serve the flesh. I'm going to have to move a little bit faster. I'm going to run out of time, and you guys are going to give me glaring looks because I know some of you go to dinner. They're carnal. We see that in verse 4, right? For certain people, having crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Interesting wording there, but ungodly people. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We can piece all of these together. I'll just give them all really fast, how they serve the flesh. They defile their own flesh in their ignorance. They're selfish. They want to be liked. I love this. They they want to be liked by others, and, and we see the issue of favoritism here. These people want others to like them so that they can be elevated. This is a a sensual desire. Men might struggle with it more than women, but I think women struggle with it too. Although I don't know because I've never been a woman. All of these things point back to they are trying to feed their inner man. They're trying to make themselves gods. They want to satisfy the flesh. They want to live in the flesh. They show favoritism to others so that they can be elevated. These people are so selfish that they're not even interested in loving the people around them because they simply want to be elevated by the people. And ultimately, the desire is to subjugate people so that they would be more important. They serve the flesh. Third, they reject authority. Verse 4 begins by saying that they deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They are their own Lord. They're the Lord of their life. They're the one in control. There is no authority that they are to be in obedience to or even to submit themselves to. Most of these people, especially in the American church, struggle with the idea of the church being an authority in their life. Jesus teaches very plainly in Matthew 18 that the church is the authority in the world. He gives us the example of church discipline for the purpose that if someone refuses to repent, you're supposed to bring them to the church ultimately after a process of seeking and all done through humility. Don't misquote me. Don't misunderstand me. But if they will not repent, we're to, as a church, put them out and let them be as a Gentile and a tax collector to us. This idea carries with it the weight that the church has authority over the life of their members, not an individual the church as a whole. They blaspheme the glorious ones. This is verse 8. Rejecting authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Who are the glorious ones that are being referenced here? It's the elders of the church. It's actually who's being, if we looked in the language, it's very clear. They're talking about pastors. What do you mean? The shepherd's supposed to have authority over people? Yes. In fact, we're commanded in Scripture to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly and love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This isn't just an authority of the pastors, but glorious ones. It's also the word where we see saints... Church members are supposed to submit to the authority of one another in their life. They reject authority. They're always complaining. Someone who complains has a problem with authority. I've never met a child that doesn't complain that also has an issue with authority. And likewise, I've never met a child that does complain. Am I saying this backwards? I'm I'm confusing myself. You you catch my meaning though, right? The reason people complain is they're not okay with submitting to somebody else. Grumblers, malcontents. They simply don't have peace with God. All this points to a false profession of faith. And finally, they put others in subjugation. If you look at verse 16, I found this really... Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters. Loudmouth boasters. Have you ever met somebody that uses big words just to confuse you? Why do you think they do that? Listen, I'm not talking about me, by the way. Some of you are thinking me, and you need to repent. It is my own inadequacy that I, I struggle with words, and, and sometimes it's just easier for me to reach the word that's closer to the, the, the language that I'm using. So if you're thinking of, that's not me, I hope. Have you ever met someone that really just uses big words just to make you feel dumb? That's a way of making people submit to authority. We see this in the political scene all the time today. People trying to control the language that is used in debates. The whole issue with political correctness, you know what the real issue with that is? It's a way to control free speech. Because if you can control how people speak, you can also control the way that they think. It's a form of control. It's a form of putting people in subjugation. Paul when talking about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. Now Baptist hold on, I know this is making you uncomfortable, but the word glossa in Greek is just making reference to different languages and it is certainly a gift to be able to speak multiple languages. I consider myself gifted to be able to speak different languages. Michelle's frustrated with how easily I can pick up on different languages. I do consider that a gift, maybe not a spiritual gift, but it's a talent at least. Paul says the reason why tongues is a less important gift than the gift of prophesying. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? People that use big words to subjugate people are not really concerned with instructing or edifying the people they're speaking to. It's a pretty big distinction finally, they're, they're divisive. They're always ready to fight. These are the characteristics that are given to those. I said there's a second category we can look at in this passage, and that is the judgment that awaits them. And, and that's pretty clear. <clears throat> Verses 5 through 11 explore that God is planning to deal with these people the same way that He has dealt with them in the past. He gives us the image that they've been cast into darkness for judgment verses 6 and and verse 13, that shows up, that they've been reserved for eternal fire, verse 7, 14, and 15. He gives us the imagery of the past in Cain who murdered his brother Balaam who was deceitful in covetousness and attempted to lead others astray. We spoke about that this morning from Numbers 22 through 25. And also Korah. Everyone familiar with Korah? What did Korah do that was wrong? Come on. It's the evening service. You guys got this. What did Korah do that was wrong? The sons of Korah were frustrated that Moses and Aaron were able to lead all of the Israelites. And so they gathered, garnered together. They, they were divisive. And they garnered together a kind of a, you call it a coup. And Moses said, that's fine. We'll put God to the test. We'll worship then you will worship. And what did God do? He opened up the earth and he swallowed all of the sons of Korah. Pretty awesome. God judged them. He gives us the image of everlasting chains and darkness reserved for the angels in verse 6. That there's vengeance by eternal fire, verse 9 and 7. He says, woe to them in verse 11. He says that there's blackness of darkness forever in verse 13. The Lord comes to execute His final judgment promised in verse 14 and 15. Why is all of this included in this letter? For people that Jude has said have been called and are sanctified by God the Father in verse 1. So that you would realize how important it is that you contend for the faith. And you not fall asleep and think these things unimportant. That you would realize that the judgment that awaits these false prophets could easily be the judgment that awaits you if you allow yourself to listen to them if you allow yourself to become one of them. So what is our discernment ministry then? This is really where I want to focus, and I've only got 15 minutes to focus on it. But beginning in verse 20, we find the actual exhortation or the instruction. What are you supposed to do? All right, we're told there's false prophets in the world. We're told what they look like. You should be able to identify them now, at least in part. You're told what judgment awaits them. You should be motivated to identify them and to flee from them. What's next? Begin in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present yourselves blameless before the presence of His glory and great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I think there's seven things that we could do in that list. Seven habits for the spiritually discerning. What does our discernment ministry look like? How do we avoid becoming like the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 that was accused of being able to discern false prophets but forgetting their first love? One. We should build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. The Christian faith must never be allowed to stand still because, like a house that is neglected, even after a short period of time, roots grow, structures break, foundations are cracked. We cannot leave our faith alone. We must push onward to grow in the faith. The foundation of our Christian faith is our most holy faith. Our faith must depend on what God has revealed. That's an important point. It must depend on the Word of God. We need to be a people that are strengthening our faith by spending time in the Word, by reading it, by studying it, by growing in knowledge, by proving the calling with which we were first called. Second, we must be praying in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? That's a weird turn of phrase. We don't see it very often in the Bible. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Just like reading your Bible, I said you cannot do it alone, but you need the Spirit of God illuminating truth to you. You cannot pray alone. It is the Holy Spirit that gives words to those things, those, those groanings that are unintelligible, that allow us to pray and there's actually a relationship here. If we look at this, you are to build yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. If we do all of this, if all we do is read the Bible, we will have a great deal of light, a great deal of knowledge, but not much power in refuting false prophets. Likewise, if we pray without reading our Bible, we will be guilty of having zeal without knowledge. These two things must walk hand in hand. We read the Word to grow our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We use that faith to ask God for what we need and what His Word tells us we may have. James says that you have because you do not ask. That doesn't mean you can ask God for whatever you like. You must ask God for what is according to His will. And how will you know what is according to His will? But by reading His Word. By being filled up with His Word. In fact, I believe it is a a neglected practice simply to pray Scripture back to God. We must keep ourselves in the love of God. Third, we must keep ourselves in the love of God. Now... Notice that Jude doesn't say that we should keep our salvation or that we should maintain our salvation. That would be impossible. In fact, he says that we are kept, verse 1 of the same book, kept for Jesus. We're already kept. Our salvation is preserved. If we've been saved, if we've been called, if we've been justified, we've been sanctified, salvation's secured. But we can keep the love of God because it is possible for us to stray away from His love. Jesus, in fact, gave the same commandment in John 14 or John 15. We're all familiar with John 15. For I am the vine, ye are the branches. Without me, ye can do nothing. John 15, 9, he tells us, Abide in my love. This can also be translated simply to continue in my love. It is a command given to Christians. The reason we should strengthen our faith is because without it, we cannot keep with the love of God. What does all this have to do with discernment ministry? Build yourself up in your most holy faith. Be in prayer along with the Holy Spirit. Keep in the love of God. What could possibly come next if we keep reading? It's waiting for the mercy of Christ that leads to life. You see, where I think discernment ministry often turns course and where it often goes wrong, for some reason, men think they can save the world. You can't save the world. There's not one among us that can save the world. Christian faith means being patient for the one who actually can save the world. Waiting for the mercy of Christ that ultimately leads to life. I've never met a false prophet that is repented of their sin because somebody got on Facebook and left a, a, a very well-worded, well-thought-out, very rational rebuke. I've tried it myself, and it's, it's never been fruitful. I've tried getting Joel Osteen to repent. He just won't do it. I've tried getting churches that teach things that are unscriptural to repent. They just won't do it. I've even tried getting other Baptists to repent. They just won't do it. Turns out yelling at people doesn't make the most compelling argument. And so I thought my approach just needed to be more intellectual. If I could just outline my thoughts a little bit better, that I could call them to reason. Well, it turns out that false prophets don't do the reason thing, so that doesn't work either. You know what the answer is? It's simply Jesus. It's simply a dynamic faith in Him. We should live waiting for the hope that awaits us in heaven and the glories of heaven and trusting to Him. And you say, well, shouldn't I care? That I mean, these people are going to hell. That's what we're saying. They're false prophets. Shouldn't I care to evangelize them? Absolutely. But I'm not going to save them. God's going to save them. I need to proclaim the truth. I need to live the truth in my life. And only then, maybe then, I might be ready to have mercy on those who are doubting. Who are we talking about here? But I I think this is making reference to those who are children in the faith. And these are the people that are the most susceptible to being led astray by false prophets. Children in the faith, those who are immature, those who have not put themselves forward to grow up. They're led astray by all sorts of things. They repost things without thinking about it. If you tell a child not to do something, what do they do? Yeah, they do it. How do teachers maintain classroom order? Do they reason with children? I, I, Michelle and I talk about this all the time. I say, "Listen, you're smarter than they are. You have to outsmart them." And that's how that's how I have to deal with my children, right? I literally have to outsmart them. I have to make them want to do the things that they need to do. Now, if I just tell them to do it, well, they, they're, they're children. They're, they're going to do whatever they want. Don't draw, in your, don't draw with crayons on your wall. They're going to draw with crayons on their wall. If I give them a piece of paper instead to draw with, they still might draw on the wall with crayons, but they're, they're more likely to use the paper that I gave them because I've given them an outlet for that. What are we to do with young Christians, those who are struggling with doubt? We're to shepherd them. We're to be patient. We're to be merciful with them the way that Christ has been merciful with us. We're to preach the gospel to them in a loving and gentle way. Then we also have to be willing to save others. What about those that have jumped ship? What about those that we would even call apostates? We should be willing to go and save them, but we should do so with fear. Look at verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Does anyone go into the fire without preparing themselves? You should be prepared. You should be willing to show them mercy and with fear that you would protect yourself, that you would not be drawn into them. This phrase, hating even the garment stained by the flesh, this is a Jude's... Most likely writing to a Jewish audience here, and so the idea here is Jews were so preoccupied with the idea of cleanliness and cleanliness and purity and holiness that if somebody were defiled by sin and they touched even the hem of their clothes, that clothing was to be defiled as though it carried sin on it. You've heard it said that we should hate the sin and love the sinner? It's true. We should hate even the garment defiled by sin. We should go in with our guard up ready to preach the gospel. You guys are ready for this, aren't you? It says seven habits for the spiritual. Do you think there's a room for a bonus one in there? What's the seventh one? First a list of 17, now a list of 7. We need to have confidence in God. The way that Christians are to practice a discernment ministry is first to protect ourselves, second to protect those that are around us, and third to save those who are in the clutches of Satan. To trust God with the ability to deliver anyone who professes faith in Christ. I think some of us has forgotten this so much. And what concerns me the most about discernment ministry is that I I see many people who are so prolific in denouncing false teaching that I don't think they would even be willing to accept true repentance if they saw it. Guys, I think the gospel is so powerful that the vilest people that live in this world can show real fruit by professing faith in Christ. Who's the the vilest people in our society today? Pedophiles? They'd be up there. Drug addicts? Maybe not. I'm a little bent on that because I was raised by drug addicts, so I have a peculiar sensitivity to that, but we can justify that by saying that they're victims of a disease. What about parents who abuse their children on drugs? I believe the gospel can touch their heart. I believe that Jesus can change lives in ways that we wouldn't possibly believe. Verse 24, To Him who is able to keep you from the stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. We can never, ever, ever lose sight of the fact That we are just as guilty, just as culpable as the most vile person in our society. And that it is only by Christ that we are able to be presented as blameless before the presence of God. It's only with that attitude of humility that we can write, as Jude says, a servant of Christ. It's only with that kind of attitude that discernment will ever have an actual impact on the world. We have to believe in the power of the gospel. As simple as it sounds, as cliche as it sounds, you've probably heard it your whole life. If we lose sight of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, we will have no power. You will not save the world. I will not save the world. Christ will save the world. And it will be through our obedience to Him. We must realize that He is our Savior, not the other way around. got two minutes. Any final thoughts before we dismiss? Any discernment ministry we need to talk about? You guys want to talk about Benny Hinn? All right. That's all I've got. Let's pray and be dismissed. Father in heaven, I ask that you bless this group of people. Father, I pray that you'd meet their needs in an abundant way. God, that you give them things that will protect them from being distracted by this world, that you would give them contentment in their heart, that they would be ready to serve you. God, that they'd be willing to sacrifice for you. God, that we would all be willing to give everything up for you. And that through a true and dynamic faith in you, that the world might see the true light of the gospel shining out. Denver Street Baptist Church in Greenwood. Father, I pray that our community would come to know you. Father, I pray that you would save the vilest among us and give us a heart to care for them, to love them, to be gentle and compassionate with them. God, I pray that you would send this church the lost and the destitute and that you would give us the energy and the zeal that we need to be ministers to them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.